This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no disbelief, no debunking, no accounting for taste. This is Encounter 304, Adamski Exposed, or not. Before we get into things, some follow-up from our last full-length adventure. I asked for suggestions about where beginners could begin with the whole flying saucer thing. Thanks for all the feedback. A few people suggested this very podcast, obviously thinking there was some sort of prize. Uh, Seriously, thank you. Uh, Bruce Pretty, whose podcast Unfathomable is well worth your time, suggests a book that was one of my first forays into the field, Timothy Good's Above Top Secret. Listener Stuart L. recommends Nick Pope's book about the abduction phenomenon called The Uninvited. And Chris B. suggests the UFO History Podcast episodes of Where Did the Road Go, on which I was a guest along with Mike Cleland. Links to all of these great suggestions are in the show notes. Personally, I'd also suggest checking out a book I read back in the 90s that got me thinking about some of these topics, Howard Blum's Out There. It's especially relevant, I think, these days, given recent revelations about the government's continued interest in the subject. And finally, big thanks to a comment spam bot who wrote, I love this, quote, This can be a really great accessibility. Today, coming from Yahoo while searching the same subject material, I really ate up everything you were required to talk about. Maintain the fantastic perform. Thank you so much for those kind words, and I will indeed maintain the fantastic perform to the best of my God-given ability. And as I finished saying that, I realized that if this wasn't a spam bot and this was actually just a a sincere commenter who was a poor writer, I uh, I feel kind of bad about reading that sort of sarcastically. But anyway, let's just keep going and, and keep trying to maintain the fantastic perform as best we can. So onward. This was originally going to be a 1955 installment of the zine scene, but when I opened up the January 1955 issue of Nexus, I realized that the biggest story of the year was right there and needed its own space. And that is Jim Mosley's devastating critique and takedown of George Adamski's initial contact claims that were published in the book Flying Saucers Have Landed. Today, we'll look at this expose the response from Adamski and others, and the belief in his claims that's persisted over the past six decades or so. So, in case you've missed some previous installments, long story short, George Adamski was the first prominent flying saucer contactee. That is, someone who claimed personal contact and interaction with extraterrestrial beings that were almost always human in appearance. There are often, if not always, philosophical, religious, moral, or social messages that are a part of these encounters. And Adamski was sort of the progenitor of this. He would promote something he called the Cosmic Law, a universal moralistic framework that he connected not only to the Space Brothers, but to a wide variety of global, spiritual, and religious traditions. Adamski hit the saucer scene in the late 1940s, lecturing on the discs and attempting to photograph them. In November 1952, he had his initial contact with Orthon the Venusian, which was described in Flying Saucers Have Landed, co-written with Desmond Leslie, and published in 1953. Throughout 1954, he soaked up publicity and lectured around the country, including in places like Detroit, for the Detroit Flying Saucer Club, as we've seen. 
Mosley's article, Some New Facts About Flying Saucers Have Landed, appeared in the January 1955 issue of Nexus and extensively critiqued Adamski's claims up to that point. Mosley's article revolved around two key assertions. First, that Adamski's photographs of spacecraft were not of genuine spacecraft, and second, that he was being less than honest and straightforward about his November 20th, 1952 encounter with Orthon near Desert Center, California. Mosley extensively interviewed a number of people involved in Adamski's claims and talked to Adamski himself. The first sort of crack in Adamski's story was about the origins of his saucer photography copy, his saucer photography hobby. In Flying Saucers Have Landed, Adamski claimed that technicians at the Navy's Point Loma lab encouraged his photography and told him that the objects he was seeing were actually interplanetary. Mosley was able to get personnel from the lab on the record, claiming that Adamski had grossly misquoted them. Now, I suppose, as Adamski's defenders would say, well, these guys were just lying to protect the secret of the saucers from being known by the general public. But, you know, probably not. Mosley also um, sort of dissected the following claim that Adamski had made. If these saucers were secret experimental military devices, I would not be allowed to copyright my photographs and send them so publicly through the mail. And I sent a set of them to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. In the interests of national security, they would have stopped me if I was photographing our own secret craft. They never have. Mosley points out that while this may be true, it's also true that the same arguments would apply if Adamski was photographing extraterrestrial craft. So the fact that they haven't stopped him from photographing whatever he's photographing has no bearing on what he might actually be photographing is basically what Mosley is saying there. Also related to the photographs of the flying saucers, Mosley turns to an expert in optics and astronomy, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Yes, the 2001 A Space Odyssey, Arthur C. Clarke. Yes, Clarke's Law, Arthur C. Clarke. That, Arthur C. Clarke. Mr. Adamski's hobby is photographing flying saucers, and he is undoubtedly the most successful at this interesting art. There are, in the book, several close-ups of spaceships, leaving no doubt that they are artifacts. The uncanny resemblance of the scout ships to electric light fixtures with table tennis balls fixed underneath them has already been pointed out. To us, the perspective is all wrong, and though this is a qualitative impression, perhaps not susceptible to rigorous proof, the pictures seem to be of small objects photographed from very close up, and not of a large object seen through a telescope. Many people, including, we suspect, Mr. Adamski, do not realize that a large object seen through a telescope bringing it to within 20 feet looks quite different from the object itself 20 feet away. Mosley also talks about the witnesses to the November 20th contact and some issues he has with those witnesses. When I first read Flying Saucers of Landed, I was impressed by the fact that Adamski's story was backed up by four people, the Baileys and the Williamsons, whom Adamski knew only slightly. Although the text does not explicitly say so, I came to the conclusion, as many other readers did no doubt, that these four people were impartial, reasonably conservative, well-educated people not prone to indulge in hoaxes or to be easily swayed by a hoax perpetrated upon themselves. 
I learned, however, from my own investigations that all four were already ardent believers before they made the November 20th contact, and that none had any particular educational advantages that would qualify them as expert and or impartial observers. In particular, Williamson, though a pleasant enough young man, admits that he has no degree entitling himself to be called Doctor, even though he allows himself to be called Dr. Williamson throughout the book. Put together, I think these facts add up to an entirely new picture of Adamski and his witnesses. When we remember that two of Adamski's witnesses were close personal friends, one the owner of the property where he lives and the other his secretary, and when we find that none of the other four can be called either impartial or objective, then I believe a new light is thrown on the whole situation. Mosley also points out that in his investigations, he's found that some of the witnesses have changed their story somewhat. At least one of Adamski's six sworn witnesses no longer upholds the account as presented in the book. Mr. Al Bailey, who is a railroad worker in Winslow, Arizona, told me in a personal interview that he did not see the spaceman with whom Adamski allegedly talked, nor did he see the scout ship that allegedly landed on the desert. He did see the mothership and some flashes of light in the direction where Adamski was supposed to be during the contact. To the best of his knowledge, no one else present saw any more than he did. Although Bailey admits that Adamski's account is not true in all details, he feels that Adamski's contact may actually have taken place, though he himself cannot vouch for it. I therefore feel that if a hoax was involved, Mr. Bailey was duped rather than being in on it, for he further states that he believes the advanced text of the book sent him by Adamski, and on the basis of which he made his sworn statement, was not the same text actually used in Flying Saucers of Land. Another key part of this indictment was the testimony of Gerald Baker. Baker was credited in Flying Saucers Have Landed with Photograph 7, captioned, quote, Flying Saucer Passing Low Over Trees. Mosley interviewed Baker extensively and found that things weren't as they seemed. Baker now, despite the sworn affidavit saying one thing, had a new sworn statement saying that he was not the person who took that photo and that he should not have been credited with that photo. And further, that Adamski told him, you know, keep your mouth shut about not taking the photo. Your name's attached to it now. Maybe you can, you know, do yourself some good financially through this whole flying saucer thing. Baker also alleges that he heard a tape recording of the group of witnesses, Adamski and some of his friends, making plans for having their contact, that he bought the photographic plates that they would have with them when they went to the desert and took the photos of the alleged ships and whatever, and that um, that this was all basically a fix from the very beginning. So as he concludes his article, Mosley um, does sort of try to soften the effects of what he's saying, but um, he's still pretty straightforward about what he believes about Adamski's claims. Let us remember that I'm not saying that George Adamski's account is entirely untrue. In the final analysis, the true story may be known in its entirety only to Adamski himself. All any outsider can do in regard to what another man claims to have seen and done is to point out flaws in that man's account. However, I do believe that Adamski's narrative contains enough flaws to place in very serious doubt both his veracity and his sincerity. Furthermore, I am hoping, in the light of all that the previously unpublished facts contained in this article, that the reader will be moved to make for himself a careful reevaluation of the worth of the Adamski book. One final note. 
On my own part, at least, I am moved by no personal antagonism of any kind toward either George Damsky, Desmond Leslie, or any of the other principals in this narrative. Ever since my meeting with Adamski about a year ago, I have been convinced that he is a kindly man who would do harm to no one. If he has written a fraudulent book, I believe that he did so not so much for his own personal profit, but to put across in dramatic form philosophical principles in which he sincerely believes. In any case, his book has entertained thousands and injured no one. But I sincerely feel that if the truth concerning these mysterious flying saucers is ever to be arrived at, someone must now and then perform the rather thankless task of sifting away the saucer fiction from the saucer facts. And it is with this goal in mind, and no other, that I have written the above account. Unsurprisingly, um, Adamski acted and responded with, uh, with some sort of justifiable defensiveness. Over Mosley's article, he issued a response entitled Time Will Tell in the spring 1955 issue of Gray Barker's Saucerian magazine. Here are some selections from that rebuttal. Regarding Mr. Mosley's article, let me say that throughout the history of man on earth, it has been the habit of little minds to fight and try to discredit every new event brought forth for the benefit of mankind. The same condition exists today in relation to the true facts regarding our space visitors. Naturally, I could go into a detailed discussion about the points which Mr. Mosley has brought out in an attempt to expose the truth about my experience, but the truth needs neither exposure nor defense. Time itself proves all truth, and so it will be in this case. Then it will be found that Mr. Mosley's statements and those of Mr. Baker are as false as was Dr. Lofhead's foretelling of a great catastrophe for Chicago and the world on December 21st, 1954. Mr. Mosley impresses me as being young and seeking notoriety on sensationalism without firmly adhering to actual fact. He has much to learn along the path of life, and at present he is traveling the rough road of his own choosing. I am an old man, and yet in my entire life I have never stooped to fraudulent means for self-promotion. I stand firm on my statements in the book Flying Saucers Have Landed. The experience recounted therein was an objective experience, and the photographs are authentic photographs of spacecraft from other planets. I can fully assure the world that I will never indulge in dishonesty of any kind for the promotion of self. The brothers, who themselves are honest, would never stand for deceit of any kind. Should I ever indulge in a single act of falseness, I would thereby forfeit the privilege of ever again meeting them and learning from them. That price would be too high for me to ever take such a chance. Adamski didn't present any further proof of his tales. Just as many of Adamski's desires for the people of Earth were spiritual rather than material, it followed that acceptance of his stories would rely more on faith than on journalistic standards of evidence. Adamski's second contact book, Inside the Spaceships, published in 1955, would depend more on faith to gain the acceptance of readers than on photographs. Even as contactees like Adamski had their claims discounted and ridiculed, he had a devoted band of followers who, he felt, who felt he was more than just a run-of-the-mill contactee. For example, take the obituary co-written by Flying Saucers Have Landed collaborator Desmond Leslie and Adamski's longtime associate Alice K. Wells. Wells claimed that Adamski was a, quote, member of the Interplanetary Council, which monitors the solar system. Adamski's earthly body had died, but his soul was assisting the Space Brothers. Leslie asserted that Adamski thought that he had a soul that originated on another, more advanced planet, and Leslie claimed that Adamski had shown him a bizarre birthmark. 
I don't suppose he'll mind me telling this now that he has cast off that final body, but he once showed me the most extraordinary birthmark. His navel was not like a human navel at all. It was a huge solar disk with deeply cut rays extending out about six inches all around it, from waist to groin. What this signifies, I have no idea, unless it is truly a sign of a child of the sun. It seems very likely that George was one of these masters, and that he was chosen to confound the intellectual and the arrogant and the know-it-alls, just as the prophets in the past have been chosen whose very simplicity and humble birth has made them better vehicles for a spiritual message than those whose reasoning powers have clogged up their spiritual channels. But did Adamski really die? One of the key stories behind Adamski's position as something more than a mere contactee is recounted in a book by Eileen Buckles called The Scoriton Incident. Did Adamski return? According to Buckles' account, In 1965, a man from Devon in Great Britain named Ernest Bryant encountered three jumpsuit-clad figures and their flying saucer. One of the men identified himself as Yamsky and spoke in an American accent with slight Eastern European inflections. This alleged meeting took place on the same day, April 23, 1965, on which Adamski died. This meme of Adamski's continued existence resurfaced in the 1980s in a book called Angels and Starships by an Italian flying saucer researcher named Giorgio Dibitanto. First published in Italian in 1983, it recounted a 1980 incident in which he met Furkan, Ramu, and Orthon, three of the space brothers, and along with them were several other space brothers and sisters, including one who seemed familiar. Then another man was introduced to us who impressed us immediately with his kindliness and amiability. He smiled like one who had much to say, but would not speak. His name is George, said Raphael, nodding in my direction. The same as yours. This, our brother, lived for a while on Earth where he chose to come on an assignment. Now he's returned to us. The 21st century has seen a resurgence in Adamski's popularity on the fringes of the saucer scene. In 2001, Colin Bennett published Looking for Orthon, the story of George Adamski, the first flying saucer contactee, and how he changed the world. In it, Bennett claims, quote, Flying saucers have landed as a masterpiece. It is a story about our perception of history, the nature of technological power, and just who or what exactly governs the forces of modern belief. End quote. Bennett weaves Adamski into the fabric of the counterculture of the 1950s and 60s, He's a witness to and instigator of fundamental change, regardless of what the true nature of his paranormal experiences might have been. Bennett perhaps goes a bit far in giving Adamski credit for the cultural development of the post-war U.S. For example, um, Bennett says, quote, When we look at Adamski, we look at a part of the very inside of the American mind, pregnant with experimental structures, machines, and ideas, all interwoven with the mysteries of Jane's... Jane Mansfield, Marilyn Monroe, and the assassinations. No other mind on the planet is like this. If we laugh at that, we might bear in mind that Star Trek, Uncle Sam's national flagship, would not have been possible without taking on something of Adamski's original vision. This alone puts him on the level of Fritz Lang and the creators of the Flash Gordon films. In Adamski's mind is the source of American triumph and dread. End quote. Now, as someone who has been accused of giving Adamski and the contactees a bit too much credit for cultural and social significance, I have to say that even I think this is going a little far. 
along with credit for Star Trek, Bennett credits Adamski with creating, quote, a permanent pan-dimensional masterwork, end quote, whatever that means. His pictures, writings, and speeches were an artist's portfolio of weirdness. Bennett's book, Looking for Orthon, exists in a space between a straightforward apologia for Adamski's contact claims and a broader exploration of his role in esoteric thought in the second half of the 20th century. It's a good book, actually, and I think it's worth your while to give it a read. Dutch writer Gerard Artson's 2010 book, George Adamski, A Herald for the Space Brothers, um, has sort of a brief biography of Adamski and then sort of goes into a precy of the views Adamski presented in his major writings, reprints of two very rare Adamski pamphlets from the 60s, and uh, continues the, the valorization of Adamski and, and his views that began with Bennett's work. Artson claims that his biographical sketch of Adamski is, quote, a monograph about the scope and significance of Adamski's work, which is reappraised here in light of the spiritual realities of life with the emergence into full public view of our elder brothers, the masters of wisdom of the spiritual hierarchy headed by the world teacher and the space brothers from our neighboring planets at the dawn of the new cosmic cycle of Aquarius. Clearly, even to this day, there are those who not only disregard the evidence that Adamski was not entirely honest, but who believe that Adamski himself was one of these intergalactic spiritual masters, rather than a mere mortal who happened across some friendly space brothers in the desert. We'll end with some words from the man himself, quoted on the cover of the issue of Probe magazine commemorating his life. Truth is like a great puzzle picture, a mosaic as it were, and each man's individual expression is a part of the total composition. The mature individual realized life as a succession of duties to be performed, because there are diversified concepts of life does not mean that only one can be correct. No, all are true. Whatever is conceived of in the mind of man is true for him for the moment, just as every act of nature is true, whether it be of creation or disintegration. Man's ideas may be used unwisely because he has not enough knowledge to use them constructively in relation to other truths, but that does not mean that the results establish a fact. Our purpose in life, then, is not to personally judge between the true and the untrue, but to so coordinate our own being with nature that we may unite the knowledge of cause and effect. When you've dismissed the concept of truth as entirely subjective, as Adamski attempts to do here, can your falsehoods ever really be exposed? For those who accept his stories, Mosley's expose merely exposed the doubters, those without the imagination to see Adamski's truth, those who may not have been living the saucer life. You can follow along with us at saucerlife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>